Welcome into TYT The Conversation. It's Adrian Lawrence and it is a great day to talk to clinical reviewer on political affiliation study for the Recovery Village. I'm talking about Stacey Henson. She's also the community outreach coordinator for advanced recovery systems. And she helps families, clients, organizations really find quality treatment options for mental and behavioral health disorders. Thank you for joining us, Stacey. Absolutely, thanks for having me. Yes, and as I understand it, you all surveyed a thousand people nationally to see how the events of 2020 are really impacting our mental health when it comes to substance abuse and how we're handling the situation. What were those results and what do they look like? You know, Adrian, they were actually very striking. I think that mental health and substance use are not always talked about as much as they should be. But what we're starting to see is people are paying maybe a little more attention. And I think that the the outcome of what 2020 has done across the board. And so we're looking at, we can look at the COVID piece. COVID-19 has had an incredible impact on people's mental health and substance use. We look at the social justice issues and the stress that that's brought home, close to home, you know, on TV, looking at it, you know, and how it affects our neighborhoods and our relationships. And then we look at the election and the impact that that have on, had on people, different parties, different perspectives. Wow, it's it has been one of those years that we want to forget, but unfortunately, we probably never will forget. Particularly when we look at the impact that's left behind, particularly about COVID-19 and the death count that we have going on right now. And something that I thought was pretty interesting is that your survey results showed differing ways of handling it based on political party. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely, it was it was an interesting piece. I love I love research because you can pull different components um, and really kind of draw a different picture to let you see how different aspects of people's lives and who they are impact or how, how it impacts how they choose to to deal with things. And so what we found is looking at we breaking it down on the impact of mental health. Republicans found that they were more I guess they reported that they were more in more stressed by the financial components of COVID-19 and that that piece was more difficult for them. Independents seem to be struggling more with the stay at home and quarantining order. And then Democrats were concerned about you know getting sick or a loved one getting sick. And they included the election and social justice in there as well for them. And something that I saw that I thought was kind of interesting was this thought that mental health is under siege. Can you explore more more of that, and what do you mean by that? Well, I think Adrian, the, it's under siege because people are being tested in ways that we've never been tested before. I mean, my generation has never seen anything like this, and I hope I don't ever see it again. But we're looking at having to deal with a pandemic in a way that you know we're flooded with information, which is fantastic. But sometimes that information overload can be very distressing for people. It's hard to know when to step back from that. And then the other huge piece of it, when you look at mental health and you look at substance use, is most people's general resources and the what what they turn to to help manage stress has been taken away. You know, and that's where that quarantining piece comes in. So if you're used to be someone that would go to the gym and exercise and that helped you de-stress, or if you would hang out with your family or your friends and that's been taken away, school for the kids, right? So everything has changed. So what our normative function and our normative ways of coping have been challenged. 
And one of the things I keep reading about that fascinates me is the longer this goes on, the more distressed people are showing. Because maybe we're able to cope in small chunks of time, but is the, the unknown of when is this gonna get better just drags on and, and has a larger impact on people's ability to cope. Yeah, and that's actually very scary. And especially when we look at, like you said, these outlets for coping with stress, how those have been taken away from us. So what outlets have people turned to now that you've seen really seem to take the rise and account for the majority of the outlets people are now using? Well, what we're seeing is people are falling into old old habits, unhealthy behaviors. You know, we're seeing an increase in substance use across the board. And that can be simply people having more alcohol. That seems to be the biggest one. It's more accessible, it's legal. You can have it delivered to your front door, right? I mean, there's so many pieces that come into play with that. But we're seeing um, anecdotally an uptick in overdoses from people that are not, you know, that are relapsing, that maybe we're in long term recovery. I work with a guy who um, he's based out of Sarasota. And in his recovery community, he's been in recovery for over 10 years. He lost almost, I think it was around 10 people in a month period after COVID hit. Accidental overdoses, because they were people that had been in recovery and made that first use and ended up killing them. And it's tragic. So falling into old behaviors, looking for some way to connect and cope, and it just it just isn't healthy. Wow, tragic indeed. That is incredibly unfortunate. And when we kind of look forward, since we don't really have an idea of when this will end, yes, we've had several pharmaceutical companies say that they are on the verge of getting some kind of treatment out there. But in reality, how do we see this impacting people in the long term? Well, I think what we're gonna see potentially, I just had this conversation with somebody the other day is people are learning how to cope in different ways right now. What's gonna happen with the transition back? And we part of our study looked at our school kids more anxious about returning to school. And there was an uptick in anxiety for the kids, even the college kids. And so we're looking at what is the impact as we try to get back to whatever the new normal is gonna be. And that may be people realizing, wow, I've been drinking more than I realized that I'm not actually gonna be able to get back to work in the way or the capacity I used to be. And so I think the hurdles ahead of us may be the manifestation of the change in the behavior during the COVID quarantine period or the stay at home and how people are choosing to navigate back to work. And I've talked with HR people, EAPs looking at how do we help our staff get back to work. Yes, yeah, because that seems like it would be quite the journey to have to go from this current situation back to this sense of what we knew to be as normal. And so if you were in control of everything and you had unlimited resources, how would you make it happen so that it could be a smooth transition? Well, I think communication is is imperative in that regard as our resources. So we need to make sure we're communicating openly with whether it's our staff members that are coming back, it's our family, it's our colleagues. However, that dialogue happens. I think, again, that's one of the pieces I hope that comes from all of this is more of an open dialogue about substance use, mental health, need for resources. Have those conversations a little bit more openly. And the more we talk about it, the more we recognize what needs to be put into place. Because I think some some people just hold it inside. Some people do things in you know in secret, whether that's using or they isolate. But I think overall, it's just a better communication 
um, between each person and how they need to cope more healthy. Yes, because I was kind of just brainstorming the thought of, is this something that really can be ushered in at the state level or the federal level? But it's something that we definitely need to provide support to people, not just an economic support in terms of the stimulus, which is very mm-hmm. important, but also having these mental health and these support systems in place for people as they try to transition back to this normal. And I'm sure, Stacy, you're someone who follows the news and is kind of mindful of all that's going on. What do you think right now is maybe the sleeper in terms of news coverage that may be causing people considerable trauma in this moment that they may not be fully cognizant of? Um, I, I think that everybody's gonna tune into things that they're more engaged with. And so that can be kind of a an independent decision, you know, based upon each person. I think that, you know, a lot of what's going on, we might see some positive pieces, but I know there's a lot of anxiety going into the holidays, the seasonal change, what's going to happen next. You know, there's hope with the vaccine in place. Um, you know, there's still some unknowns with the election and, and finalizing all of that. So I think that people kind of key into the places for them, but I think holiday stress is normal anyway. You add add this pandemic, you add isolation, you had add quarantine, and how do we stay connected and and live our lives right with our loved ones through a time of year that usually is joyous, um, still with that unknown of what's to come. So I, I think it's kind of I almost feel like people may be holding their breath, waiting to see what's next. Yeah, that sounds very accurate. As many of us figure out what or if we're going to do anything for the holidays because we want to stay safe. But then on top of that, we have to bear in mind that there are a number of people out there who will not have family members around for the holiday because they've been taken by COVID-19. And it can be just a very solemn just existence, unfortunately, right now, which is usually a very cheerful time of the year. So I guess, what would you recommend to our viewers to do to really see if they can stay on top of things? I think the best piece, again, is to start talking more openly about what we need. And, and sometimes we don't know. So maybe that means we need to reach out to somebody. One of, the, one of the things I think that is positive that's come from COVID, if you want to twist it that way, is people are having access to healthcare in ways that they've never had it before. So having telehealth and virtual resources out there, people can connect to therapists, um, you know, group therapy, 12-step groups, their primary care physician, right, through telehealth. So there's ways to connect and ask for help. And I think that that's the biggest piece of this is trying to recognize what you need. Um, If you notice somebody that, you know, again, friend, family, colleague that seems to be struggling, ask them. You know, the Recovery Village, we have a myriad of resources on our website. We just launched a new uh, wellness app called Swell that's free and it has relaxation and meditation exercises, journaling exercises. So really kind of getting to some basic coping pieces that can be very healthy to help you navigate just day-to-day stresses. And if you have additional mental health or substance use issues, it takes you down a path that's even a little bit more deep into the therapy piece. Excellent, thank you so much for joining us, Stacy. Absolutely. We return with TYT's The Conversation and now joins us Assistant Professor of Sociology at McGill University, Barry Eidlin. Barry is a comparative historical sociologist and he's interested in studying class, politics, inequality. Welcome in, Barry. Glad to be here, Adrian. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you for joining us, especially during this time, which is so interesting, especially given that Trump has lost the election, whether he admits it or not. But I know you realize that even with the election loss for him, it doesn't mean the end of Trumpism. So what do you mean by that? Well, so Trump we means represents many different things. He's a he has his personal peccadilloes of his you know bombastic and cluelessness and that kind of and this sort of bumbling style of leadership. But he also represents a type of politics, and that is something that you know that sort of more authoritarian brand, that nationalism, that appeal to you know to racism, to that America firstism, that has a long tradition in American politics, you know, that he sort of distilled into this new form and clearly has an audience in the American electorate, particularly in the absence of compelling alternate visions. And very interesting that you say that it is a brand of politics as well, at least I'd like to think that we had evolved past it. But the reality is that no, it's very much here alive and well. And so who do you think is the last politician that really reflected these qualities of Trumpism? Well, I mean, you know, an obvious one would be someone like Joe McCarthy. That that would be obvious. But you know, there's a whole, I mean, that you can think back to the days of like the America First League. You know, this is something that really is a throwback to really the early 20th century in a lot of ways. If I'm putting my sort of Comparative historical sociologist hat on, um, and obviously updated for today. So you know where you have the, the where where the other is something different today. It's you know Muslims and immigrants and uh, particularly brown immigrants. And, uh, but uh, but that that's where that tradition comes from. That sort of nativism that you know goes back to the early days of the republic. And we had that in the early days, and then it really seemed to evolve and we moved past it. So what happened there in terms of why we said, hey, this is no longer gonna work for us? So I think that there we need to really think about America's position of global leadership that it asserted particularly after World War II, where it became the dominant, you know, to use a big sociology word, hegemonic power. In in the world, and and that kind of America firstism became more of a an idea of sort of positioning America for global leadership. So I think the flip side of that is that the return of that type of ideology could be viewed as a symptom of an America that's losing its grip on that position of leadership, and the that sort of turn inward then. Is a sort of grasping at straws in a context where America is actually losing its global position in some ways with the rise of these competitors, particularly China, which obviously occupies a lot of Donald Trump's minimal brain space. So, if I can kind of, I guess, translate your university speak, I'm kind of getting the thought that you're saying that. We were like really a big deal back in the day. We're not so much anymore. So we got super insecure and we brought Trump in because we wanted to feel like we could flex. Would that be accurate? That's a not, not a bad translation, I would say. Thank you. You're welcome. That's kind of what I do. I translate. Good things. But Trump is not necessarily a good thing. So how do you think Trumpism will play out when it concerns the future? As we know that there are hints out there and that hint kind of coming from Trump and his 
crew uh, that he is going to run again in 2024. Uh, mm-hmm. As there definitely seems to be a platform for this caliber of nonsense. Yeah, so he's definitely asserted his control over the Republican Party. And so it's going to be very hard for competitors to make a move. I'm actually less worried about Trump, the individual, and more about the ideas. And I, because I, my, my bigger worry is actually something that you were going to have a politician who has similar politics without the personal ineptitude and bombasticness, who's a much more competent politician. Because that's really, I mean, why Trump was lost in the end was really just his inability to, you know, to govern really, and 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 his his willingness to basically just insult his electorate and just these personal qualities. But those politics in the hands of a much more capable politician are actually something that's much more worrisome. Um, absolutely, this thought that you could have someone who has a little bit more tact and knows how to adhere to decorum, yet still has these um, baseless and disgusting and revolting kind of ideologies, but maybe also brings charisma to the table, could be very, very threatening considering the constituent base out there who really seem to like this thing. So I guess, where do you see America moving in the future in terms of maybe how we can stop this from happening? Yeah, so I think the big thing to understand here is that we're in a crisis of political representation on both the right and the left. So the Republican Party, obviously, we've been talking about that. Trump's taken it over, and there are a lot of people on the Republican side who feel left out of that. But over on the Democratic Party side as well, there's a huge crisis of political representation there, and that the huge numbers of Americans who really Want these broader political visions, you know, are not seeing themselves represented in the Democratic Party. You know, so you look at the data and we see huge support for things like Medicare for all, you know, doing something for climate change, whether we call it the Green New Deal or something else, criminal justice reform, racial justice. There's broad support for these things. And yet within the party, there's huge contradictions and people saying that we need to, we can't touch those things with a 10 foot pole and so on and so forth. So I think that what we need to see going forward is if there's going to be a constituency within the party that can actually articulate that broader vision. We saw that somewhat with Bernie Sanders, who obviously fell short. But to the extent that we can see a broader political vision that actually speaks to the sort of fundamental needs of everyday Americans, that's going to be a a ticket forward, I would say. Yeah, and that would be a very powerful one. And so I guess when it comes to who can make that happen, I know you kind of mentioned Barry Sanders, but kind of falling short. Is there not the running back, Bernie Sanders, the politician? Yeah. (laughs) And so when you come, when you talk about, you know, who may be out there that has this full package that could really change it all? Who are you thinking? I mean, you know, people obviously talk about AOC, who's not of age yet. But I mean, I think that what we, where I'm seeing hope in the current political landscape is in that new layer of of left political leadership. You know, the squad has expanded its ranks in the in, in the most recent round with Cory Bush and Jamal Bowman. Um, you know, the the Democratic Socialists of America endorsed candidates. Uh, you know, I think they won 20 of 27 of their endorsed races. Um, 
And there's basically a, a, what I'm seeing, you know, is a new layer of political leadership that is emerging amongst today's young people that is really inspiring. Uh, you know, as someone who's really came of political age in a period of, of decline and really a wilderness for the, for the left. So I don't want to necessarily name check any individuals, but I think that there's there's what's more important is this broad layer of political leadership that we see emerging amongst today's young people. Yes, and hopefully there will be a lot of inspiration there because we do need those new voices and that change as wow, it's just, you know, when we unfortunately look at our leadership, they tend to all gravitate toward one direction and we need, you know, fresh blood, new blood, new ideas. And so in terms of the work that you do, is there anything that you see on the forefront other than this Trumpism that you think people need to be paying attention to? Well, I think that I think I mean obviously my focus is on worker organization and I think that people have been fretting about the amount of you know union support that went for Trump. There's always a good chunk of the union vote that goes for Republicans, so I'm less concerned about that. But what I do see that's quite interesting, you know, one of the other upsides I see coming out of this election is the clear role that labor played really in swinging and tipping the balance in Biden's favor, as imperfect a candidate as Biden was, right? I think, you know, particularly we have to we have to acknowledge the work of Unite Here in door knocking in Arizona, in Nevada, in Pennsylvania. I think it's clear to say that if you didn't have those laid off hotel workers and restaurant workers knocking on doors in those three states, they would not have gone for Biden. So I think that the degree to which labor can reassert a position of political leadership in the society, we're gonna see a better way forward. Awesome, thank you so much, Barry, for joining us. And can you please tell our viewers where they can find you? Yes, I'm on Twitter at Eidlin, E-I-D-L-I-N. Fantastic, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me.